Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. Do you think you're good at multitasking? Do you wonder why you can't stay focused and what to do about it? And do you think you don't really need to take breaks very often and you just work straight through? And how long can you work straight through and still be affected? Well, today we're going to talk about attention span and we're going to talk about focus and we're going to talk about what you can do to improve your efficiency, productivity, happiness. I think they all go well together. Mostly, we're going to talk about what you do. So my guest today is Gloria Mark. She's the Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at the University of California and Irvine. She's been a visiting senior researcher at Microsoft Research since 2012. And her primary research interest is in understanding the impact of digital media, media on people's lives. And she's best known for her work in studying people's multitasking, mood, and behavior while using digital media and the real world environments. Don't we all need that one for sure? Um, she's published over 200 papers in top journals, meaning academic journals, and in conferences on human-computer interaction She's been a Fulbright Scholar. She's received the very prestigious NSF Career Grant. She's been invited to present her work at a variety of places, including Aspen Ideas Festival, and her multitasking work has appeared in lots of major media like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR in the U.S., The Atlantic, BBC, and a whole bunch of others. Her first book was Multitasking in the Digital Age, and her second book, the one we're talking about today, is Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Gloria, welcome to the show, and boy, do we need that balance restoration. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I am ecstatic to hear more about this and to talk about it. Um, I'm going to ask the same question I always do for everybody. Why? What got you started in this notion of attention? Kind of what's your driving interest? So it it's based on my own experience. So I'm trained as a psychologist. I'm I'm fascinated with people. I'm fascinated with people's behavior, what causes us to do things. And I noticed my own behavior was such that I was multitasking. I was finding it really hard to be focused on any particular screen. At the same time, I also found myself glued to my computer and found it so hard to break away. So being a scientist, I figured I could study this empirically. And I wanted to know to what extent is it just me or do other people share this kind of experience as well. So that's that's what got me started. All right. So I'm glued to my computer, but I can't focus on anything. I'm trying to multitask constantly. And the question is, I think everybody would say, yeah, that's me too. What did you find in the research? So when I first started studying this back in 2003, we found that people's average attention span on any screen was two and a half minutes. And we found that astounding at the time, right? Oh, to, to live in the glorious past. 
because we kept uh, examining attention spans over the years, and I'm talking about tracking it empirically. We're not just asking people to self-report how long are you on a screen, but we're actually using empirical objective measures. And we found that over the last 20 years, people's attention span has shortened in length. The last five, six years, it's averaged about 47 seconds on average. Wow. It's it's not just my work. Other people have replicated this result. As you know, in science, it's it's good to replicate. So it seems to be a very robust finding. So 47 seconds. So listen, I want to go back to make sure we unpack this. When you say focus attention span on any screen, so focusing on a screen, is that just looking at whatever's in front of you on your computer screen, or are you thinking about other measures? What does that look like? Yeah, so we're looking at computers, phones, tablets. Okay. Now, we're we're not measuring what people are doing off screen. For example, if people are reading papers or books, we're just looking about at what people are doing when they're on a screen. It's it's really tough to get empirical measures of what people are doing offline. When right. when we're looking at people's behavior on screens, we can use computer logging methods to get really precise measures of what people are doing. It's really hard to do this kind of work off screen. I'm sure of that. So we're tracking how long I'm on any given page, if you will. So website page, email page, one email, going to a next email. And that used to be two and a half minutes. And now we're down to 47 seconds. Yes. What that means is in an hour, I went from uh, 15, 10 screens, no longer than that. I've not done that math correctly, 30 some screens. And now I'm doing 60 some screens is basically what you're telling me in an hour. Yeah. Just to maybe tell, unpack this a little bit more, if we look at the median, the median refers to the midpoint of yeah. our observations. That means half of our observations are below the median, half or above. The median value is 40 seconds. That means half of all the observations that we found are 40 seconds or less. So that's another way to think about it. When you think about averages, 47 seconds, yes, sometimes people are spending a longer time reading. Sometimes they're just, their attention is just you know, shifting back and forth in what I call a kinetic manner, kinetic right. dynamic. Uh, and I refer to that as kinetic attention. All right. So that means if I am trying to advertise my business via some social media or being a website, largely I have 40 seconds to get a message to somebody, <laughs> anything less than that. And I'm going to miss half the population half the time. Yeah, so I, I think that's one way of putting. <laughs> that's interesting. So, do you have what do you think all of this reduced attention span is doing to us? Well, we know it's making us more stressed. So, you know, when you're switching your attention so fast, um, you know, what's there's a lot of things that are going on in the mind. We're reorienting to a new task. So every time we switch our attention, we have to pull up new information that we need to be able to make sense of, of the new task that we're working on. So we know from decades of 
psychological laboratory research that people make more errors when they switch their attention so fast. We also know from studies in the real world, there's there's a really great study that was done with physicians that showed they made a lot of prescribing errors when they were shifting their attention. And some of those errors were very severe, such as writing the wrong drug or the right wrong dosage. We also know that when people shift their attention so fast, there's a performance cost and it's called a switch cost. And that's the amount of time that it takes for people to summon up all that information they need for this new task that they've just turned to. And I use a metaphor of an internal whiteboard. So you can think of us, we have this whiteboard in our mind, which contains all the information we need for this task. So if I'm writing paper, I've got all the information I need, the topic of it, the structure of say the paper I'm working on, and then I suddenly switch to email. Okay, I have to raise that whiteboard in the mind. I have to pull up new information. Then I switch again, erase that whiteboard, write something new. And just how we can't always erase a whiteboard completely. Sometimes there's residue. There's also sometimes a residue that's left in our minds. So if I'm looking at a news item and I read about some horrifying incident, that's going to stay with me and it's going to affect my attention to the next thing I'm doing. Or if I'm working on some problem and it's really tough and it's just driving me crazy, I can't solve it. And then I try to switch to do something else. That that struggle with that problem is going to stay with me. Um, and the third thing, and this is this is really the the nail in the coffin with multitasking, switching attention is that it causes stress. It's not just association, but there's also a causal factor. Uh, we know this from decades and decades of laboratory research. We know that blood pressure rises when people are multitasking. Uh, there's a physiological marker in the body that indicates stress. Uh, from my own research, we've had people wear heart rate monitors and the heart rate monitors also indicate that people are experiencing stress as a result of multitasking, shifting their attention. Wow. So shifting your attention from one task to the next task not only causes errors, there's a cost, there's a residue left behind, and we can see the physiological impact of that in the body in classic standard stress metrics like heart rate and blood pressure and a variety of others. Okay. That's right. Wow. That's right. So it's it's no wonder that people leave their work day and feel exhausted, right? Mm -hmm. After a day of multitasking. And is it the same? So, you know, there's the multitasking between I'm switching screens every 40 seconds. So I look at an email, I look at another email, I go look up something to prepare a paper, I look at the paper, I come back to the email, I mean, I look at my instant message, you know, there's that shifting. But is it the same problem if, let's say, I'm concentrating on writing a response to something, I spend 15 minutes on that, and then I shift to another task? Does that also come with, is it the same shifting, switching cost? So, you know, if you're spending 15 minutes on, on one task, that's pretty good. 
I would say that's pretty good. And that gives you, you know, probably enough time to be able to assemble your thoughts and write something meaningful. At the same time, 15 minutes is not really long enough to be able to really perform any kind of deep thinking, right, that you might need. And very often we need deep thinking if we're doing tasks, right? We we want to put a lot of thought into what we're doing. We don't want to rush through it. And when we're switching so fast, you know, we're being pulled by email and Slack and messages and phone calls, but also by our inner urges to look up information that we're curious about. We're social beings. We're curious, right? It's it's very hard to perform when we're in this kind of situation. Wow. Okay. So what do we do about it? What's the antidote to this switching cost? How do I reduce errors and decrease stress, more importantly? Mm-hmm. So there are things we can do. And I, I am an optimist, despite the fact that I'm seeing our attention spans shrinking over the years. I am an optimist that we can do something. Um, we can think about doing solutions individually. There's things that we as individuals can do to gain agency over our actions. But we also have to think about collective solutions. So there's there's some things that individuals just can't do alone. Right. So right. let me start with the individual solutions. So um, when... You know, when I was working during the pandemic, and the, this was a challenge for a lot of people, uh, my university introduced a course for us on mindfulness, which I took, and I found that very useful, very interesting. And I discovered that mindfulness is about staying present, right? Keeping keeping your focus on the present, and it occurred to me that I can apply the same principle to what I'm doing when I'm on my computer. So I, I'm not in a mindfulness meditation state, but there are certain principles that I can extract from mindfulness. So hold on to that thought for a second. What happens when we're switching our attention so fast? So we're doing a lot of things that are automatic. So we're responding to uh, notifications. Uh, we're responding to chimes on our phones, uh, phone calls that other people are making. But it also turns out that about half the time, we have urges that lead us to interrupt ourselves. So, you know, if I'm watching someone as an observer, and they seem to be working hard, and then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they suddenly switch. And they do something else. And, you know, I've interviewed people. Why did you do this? What's going on? They have an urge. They have a memory to do something. Maybe they simply get bored or they're fatigued. There's a lot of reasons. The point, going back to this idea of what, what I'm calling meta-awareness, to be aware of what you're doing in the moment, is that if we can make these kinds of automatic behaviors more conscious, to bring them to our conscious awareness. And when we can be intentional about our actions, then that's that's a really important step that we can take. 
So how do I achieve it? So I've learned to probe myself and I've learned to recognize when I have these, these urges to switch to something new. I've learned to recognize when I see that notification and I'm about to click on it, I check myself and I ask myself, why, why do I have this urge to do this? And it allows me to reflect on my own behavior. And so usually what's going on is that I'm bored or I'm procrastinating or I'm just really curious about what's behind that notification. There's a lot of things going on. But when I can reflect on it, right, and I and all of a sudden I can be more conscious of my actions, what I'm doing, it gives me agency to be able to control them. And then I'll say, okay, I'm going to continue working for another 30 minutes or an hour, and then I'm going to go check on the news, right? Then then I can click on that. So so that's one very important thing we can do. Another thing we can do to gain agency is to practice forethought. And forethought means imagining how our current actions are going to affect our future selves, our future behaviors. So what I think makes the most sense in terms of the future is to think about your end of the day, your evening. And what do you want to be doing at seven o'clock? Probably you want to feel fulfilled. You want to feel rewarded. You want to be relaxing, maybe reading a book, talking with um, other people, drinking a glass of wine. And if I know I'm someone that can easily go onto a news site and spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and I can, I'm a news junkie. I create a concrete visualization of where I want to be at the end of the day. And that helps stop me. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's another thing. This is, we're looking at 50% of the attention shifts are actually under my control. It's my curiosity, my sense of urgency, my thought that if I don't respond to that message right this moment, then the world will come to a crawl to an end, or I'm just looking for a distraction and let me go check the news or whatever it is that your favorite thing is to do. We all have them for sure. 50% of those interruptions we can control. And the notion is to be aware of them. Yes. To make a conscious choice, do I really need to at this moment in time? And what is I'm going to get at the end of the day if I don't give into that urge right at the moment? Yes. But also, also in addition, we can be aware of our actions toward external interrupters. Mm -hmm. So notifications that flash on our screens. Or, you know, you're on a website and you see some targeted ad. That looks really enticing. We can be in control of that and ask ourselves, do I need to click on that? And right. as you know, when every time we go on the web, we leave all kinds of digital footprints. And tech companies, ad companies gather that information, create profiles about us, and create, you know, create oh. algorithms that target information to us. So it makes it very hard to resist something that's really targeted very closely to your your interests. Or, you know, you go to a shopping site and you click on a pair of jeans and then that pair of jeans follows you around on the internet, 
right? So, so we can have agency over our actions. We can become aware that, okay, I don't need to click on that pair of jeans right now. I can, I can wait. You know, maybe I'll do it at the end of the day, but I don't need to do that right now. Okay. All right. Um, I was working with a group of senior leaders just recently, and the urge among that leaders to respond to a client request was sort of, this is our brand. This is our reputation. We have to do it right this minute. That's what we do. You know, we're there to deal with crisis. I mean, that is everything steeped in the senior leadership team about what you're supposed to respond to. Okay. Perhaps that's all true. Mm-hmm. But all that's doing is ramping down with everybody in the organization that notion that when there's a ping that says there's a message, I need to instantly respond to it regardless the cost of that for me or for other work or for other clients. All right. Yeah. How do you help people? What's your advice on helping people resist those kind of urgencies? Because it's not wrong that that is part of our brand reputation. At the same time, it can't be an effective way to function. Yeah, there, there's most certainly a trade-off, right? We're, we've created a world for ourselves that we just have to react to the demands of mm-hmm. our work environment. So I would say in that situation, you know, of course you have to respond, but I would say to um, create times for these kinds of responses mm-hmm. and, you know, chunk together all these different responses so that when you take a break, from your other work, you can then devote that break to responding to to these other requests. And again, it's a trade-off. Maybe you're not going to respond that minute, but you know there's a reasonable amount of time uh, where you know the world won't come to an end, and each company has to figure out what's that reasonable window of time, and then to respond to these client requests all at once. Now, what's interesting about that is that people are really good at using analogy, working from analogy. And if you have several client requests that you have to um, you know, respond to, you might be able to use analogy, ah, this current request is really similar to the one I just did or the one I did two you know, two people ago, and this might actually improve the process. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, I would suppose that there are some client requests that are indeed urgent, that that is the one that you need to truly be instantaneous on. But every single client request all day long, every day cannot be let low urgency. So I suspect that there's some gradation that if you bothered, you could sort of begin to put that in in some categories. All right. A podcast guest way, way back when I started doing this podcast, Neen James is her name, says that the following is her strategy and I want your reaction to it. So this is a person in the world. This is how she works. She says, Mm -hmm. I set my timer for 45 minutes. I concentrate. I clear everything off my desk. I shut off all the emails, all the notifications, everything. I'm going to focus on the work that I need to do, the deep thinking for 45 minutes. The timer goes off. I stop. 
Then I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes again with the timer on to go through and deal with the emails, the Slack messages, the whatever else. And she said, I have 15 minutes, which means the timer is going to go off. So I have to be efficient in dealing with those. And then I'm going to go back to my 45 minutes of concentration. And she says that is her working pattern, particularly when there's deep work to be done. So what's your reaction? Is that a good idea, bad idea? Well, it it might work for, for this person, right? People have individual differences. What we've found in our research is that people have rhythms of focus. So there's times during the day when their focused attention is at a peak. There's times when it's in a valley. And this corresponds to the amount of attentional resources that we have available. And I would say what really works best at an individual level is to discover when your peak focus times are and to use those times for doing your hardest work, the work that requires the most creativity. And when you start entering your trough, that's the time to take a break and to do other kind of work that doesn't require so much creativity. So rather than having rigid, a rigid time frame, 45 minutes on, then 15 minutes on, instead follow your natural rhythms because people will perform better because we have limited cognitive resources. Let's be aware of those. Let's not get ourselves fatigued and let's really optimize our use of them. Okay. All right. Um, I want to go back to this notion of multitasking. Still trying to get my head around the fact that when I'm switching attention, I'm increasing the chances for errors. I'm increasing stress, probably therefore decreasing productivity and decreasing my sense of satisfaction at the end of the day. So, okay, at least you are documented increasing errors and increasing stress. Okay, you know, it's easy to dismiss that. So Gloria, can you give me kind of how really how bad is it? You tracked it with physicians, but for the average person in the average office job, how bad is that uh, cost? It, it is a cost. It is a cost. So we do find that people are stressed. Um, you know, stress is a, a really serious problem in the workplace. And in fact, the World Health Organization identifies stress as the epidemic of the 21st century, right? I mean, we've had pandemics, but stress is really uh, an epidemic. And, and it's something that really is a serious problem. And um, there are things, as I talked about, that we can do to alleviate stress. But the point is, is that when people are multitasking throughout the day and the day ends, there are carryover effects. So you leave your workplace stressed, you carry over the stress to your personal life at the end of the day. And, you know, that's not good for our mental health. It's not good for our physical health either. There are so many negative health outcomes that are associated with stress. Right. So so it is it is a serious problem. Yeah, uh, Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, they were recent podcast guests as well. Their new book is called Micro Stress Effect. And what they've done is document among top performers, so not just average workers, but top performers, that the series of little things that we ignore through the course of the day and just say that's the way things are, actually are mounting stress levels. Mm -hmm. So a late request from your boss 
to or from a new manager to get something done by the next morning creates a whole ripple of effects, not just for you, but for your team, for the family, for whoever's home with you, for a whole host of things. And it's the one event is not that big of a deal, but those ripple effects start to be a big deal. And you're identifying one more of those. It's not the late minute request. It's the switching cost from going from one activity that's incomplete to another activity that I'm now going to not complete. Yes. I mean, it's, it, if we want to drill down, there's there's also so much more involved. For example, when we leave tasks unfinished, they stay in our minds. We don't forget them. There's, there's a wonderful study that was done about 100 years ago by a woman psychologist called Bluma Zygarnik. And it's called the Zygarnik effect. And it shows that when you don't finish tasks, when they're interrupted, we tend to remember them and they create a tension in us. And the, the tension is released when you go back and work on the task and finish it because then it's off your plate. You can imagine as the day wears on that we're accumulating more and more of these unfinished kinds of tasks. We're being pulled away from something to deal with our email or answer some urgent request or go to a meeting. And so we've got, it's like, juggling plates in the back of our minds with with all these unfinished tasks. So there's that going on as well that adds to stress. Right. I hear more often than not from clients that I'm coaching this notion of I need time to do strategic thinking. Hey, yes. I need time for that depth of thinking. And that's what you're saying. When there's a task that needs some depth, all this other stuff that I'm carrying around in my brain, the unfinished tasks, the, you know, information I called up to do something and I haven't really completely erased it. The chase that I did for my attention span urges, all of that is cluttering the space. Yes. I haven't cleared it. I haven't finished it. I've increased the stress and no wonder we can't think. Yes, that's right. Wow. Okay. All right, Gloria, this is perfect time to take a break. My guest today is Gloria Mark. The book that we are talking about today is called Attention Span. Um, we get the full title on this one, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity, and also reference her earlier book called Multitasking in the Digital Age. All right, highlight here, every time you are switching, there is a cost. There's a cost in increased stress, recognizable, verifiable, significant, and there is an increased error rate. So switching, and it's even worse if I switch without finishing something. So I'm still carrying all the residues around. And that has big implications. I want to come back and talk about multitasking and what it really means we're doing in multitasking. And then we're going to move on to how do we disconnect and restore. But we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Gloria Mark. Gloria is a Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. She's also a visiting senior researcher at Microsoft. She's been doing that, Microsoft Research Center, doing that since 2012. Author of two books. One is Multitasking in the Digital Age, and two is Attention Span. Highlight of the last segment. Highlight, highlight, highlight. It used to be for any screen that we had in front of us, phone, tablet, or computer, people were looking at that screen for about two and a half minutes. Today, people are looking at a screen for 47 seconds on average and a median rate, meaning half the people are 40 seconds or less. So our attention spans have decreased and that shifting from one attention to the next is costly. All right. So Gloria... Simple summary of years of research, but I want to talk now deeply about multitasking. And let me start with the top concept. What are we doing when we're multitasking? So what we're doing is we're we're shifting our attention. So there's this misconception that humans can do two things at the same time in parallel. We can only do that if one of those things is it requires automatic attention. So for example, we you can walk and text because walking is automatic. Texting requires more what's called controlled processing, where we really have to do some kind of effortful processing in the mind. Uh, you can't do two things, two or more things that require controlled processing at the same time. It's just not possible. You can't be in a Zoom meeting and do email. So, you know, we've all been in Zoom meetings. I know many of us have tried to slip away and do our email, but there's just no way that you can pay full attention to that Zoom meeting if you're doing email. So our attention switches, right? And, you know, much of the time in the information workplace, people are doing things that require controlled processing. So um, we, you know, we can't do that simultaneously with some other activity that's automatic. All right. So I want to take a point you said at the beginning, you said we can walk and text. 
but that presumes that walking is automatic. And I have to tell you, walking down the streets of a city, let's say New York or London, is anything other than automatic because there's stuff to dodge, there's things to miss, there's stop at the streetlights. And you can walk behind somebody who's texting and see them slow down, weave in the path, kind of forget to cross at the right point, and largely just create a nuisance, in my opinion. So it's only when it's automated, like chewing gum. Yeah, and and you bring up such an excellent point. And it turns out there are studies that show there are a lot of pedestrian accidents when people text and walk at the same time, exactly for the reasons you're talking about. You know, people might get clipped by a bicycle or walk out into traffic without paying attention. So when I use the example of walking and texting, it would be walking on a straight path. There's, you know, nothing interfering. The, you know, sidewalk is is level. So ideal conditions. So in theory, right, yes, we can walk and it's an automatic action. But as soon as that, a, a car, you know, comes in front of you, you your attention suddenly switches. And it becomes controlled processing. It's the same thing when we're driving. So if you're driving down a straight road and you're talking with someone in the passenger seat, um, you know, it's largely automatic when you're driving. So you can use your attention to speak to the person next to you. As soon as a traffic light turns yellow or red, all of a sudden your attention shifts to that traffic light. It's like a trigger. You slam on the brakes and it's no longer automatic. So, so again, you know, going back to the workplace, so many things we do in the workplace requires controlled processing. And so it's just not possible to do two or more things at the same time, right? Okay. What we are doing is switching from one controlled processing activity to another back and forth. So it's switching. Um any of us who've tried to do email in a Zoom, one of two things happens. Um, I stop paying attention to one or the other, okay, so that I'm wholly focused, or I forget where I am in the sentence on my email, or I hear the words from the Zoom coming into my brain, and at the moment it sounds fine, but three seconds later or three minutes later, I have no clue what was actually said. So you don't do the processing part of that. Right. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Can you prove to me in two minutes that we can't do more than one control process at a time? Can I prove to you? Wow. Well, uh, let's take some examples. I have stubborn clients and listeners out there. That's why I'm asking. So (laughs) can you prove to me? Uh, it's well, you know, I would ask any of your clients to do an experiment where okay. they're trying to type on a on a word document, let's say they're typing a report and try to have a conversation with someone at the same time, a coherent conversation. And I guarantee you that they won't be able to. or they're trying to have an audio conference with someone and type, there's that that just can't happen, right? We we can't process the information from more than one thing when we're using any kind of effort. Okay. It's it's All just right. not possible. Right. right. Okay. So here I am multitasking. 
I am doing my email, checking my email. I'm listening to the Zoom call. And let's say simultaneously, somebody's trying to talk in my ear because I know this is happening to people as well. (laughs) Okay. What is the brain actually doing? I'm switching from one task to the next task, back to the first task. And what is that costing us apart from stress? Well, it's also when I talked about this metaphor of the internal whiteboard, right? You can think about that we have to create a mental model of whatever it is that we're doing. And every time we switch to do something else, we have to get rid of that mental model and we have to recreate a new mental model that represents the new task we're doing. And so we keep this this, uh, recreation of new mental models of information we need for the task at hand. It requires effort. And this is effort above and beyond the effort that actually is needed to do the task. So I talked about this theory, and it's it's a well-studied uh, theory, that people have limited attentional resources. So or think of it as limited cognitive resources. And there's things we do during the day that can drain them. There's also things we can do that can replenish them, like taking breaks. But every time we're switching our attention, that tank of mental resources leaks and it leaks and it's leaving less resources available for us to actually do the deep processing we need to get that task done, right? Because we're using it with, you know, all this other peripheral work that's needed just to maintain our performance of switching. Okay. All right. Um, Do you... uh... Well, I see I have seen this quoted in many, many places, and I have actually gone back to try to uncover the original source of it. But people say switching cost, switching throughout the day costs us 23 minutes. Do you can you is that true? Is that not true? Uh, That is from my research. (laughs) So so I, I know that well. So let let me go into that a little bit more. So, yes, if we're just switching screens, we're switching from email to Word to Excel, we're doing that every 47 seconds on average. But you might think maybe that's not so bad if all that switching is within the same project, Mm -hmm. right? I call that a, a sphere of work, a working sphere. Maybe that's not so bad, right? Because maybe we've got the same mental model of this project. So it turns out we looked at the data and we looked at how long people spend on any project before switching. You know, you're switching within the project, looking at different screens, but you're staying within that same project. People spend on average about 10 and a half minutes on a project before switching to something else. Now, if you switch from a project, what happens you're switching to something else. This is the general pattern that I'm describing. Right. You, sw- you switch to another project. Then you switch again to another project. And then you begin to switch and work on a third project. And then you go back and pick up that original interrupted project. So this is the general pattern we see. So it's not as though people are switching Uh, from one project, doing something quickly and then immediately going back. But there is a good chunk of intervening time, and that's about 23 
and a half minutes, that intervening time. And it's not just intervening time where you're not doing anything. We're taking these precious cognitive resources and applying it to another project and then another project and then starting another one. So this is why people are getting exhausted. Okay. It seems to me that just spending a little bit longer on that first project and bringing it to a resolution point so that I can wipe the whiteboard and not have to recreate that whiteboard in the next half day would preserve some mental resources. Is that what you're advocating as well? Yes, absolutely. So there's something that's called a break point in a task. A break point is a natural place where you can pause, where it will require less effort to pick up the task again. So if I'm writing a book chapter, a natural place to stop would be the end of the chapter or maybe the end of a section, right? Mm -hmm. So it's to everyone's advantage to work through to get to that natural break point for the task you're doing. Uh, we know that there's much less effort involved. People make less errors when they pick up a task again after a break point. So it's really important. And, and you can define ahead what those break points are. You can look at the task in front of you and you can say, I'm going to work until I get to the end of this section. You know, yeah. I've finished the part of this report and then I'm going to do something else or take a break, which is really important. Talk about that one in just a minute. I remember walking into the office of a senior executive, one of my big, 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 big clients. I won't name them, of course. And every time I would walk in his office, he would be in the middle of doing email and he would always say, give me a minute. And he wouldn't turn away from the email. He would stay focused right there, finish the sentence he was on, press send, and then shift and give full attention to me or for that matter, whoever else was in his office. And that was his pattern. And it's such a simple little thing. But if you don't do that, at least in my life, I can end up with 20 emails that are unfinished in the course of the day. And the going back to remember, what was I going to say? And why was I going right. to say that? And, oh my gosh, I forgot to get that out already. And yeah, the the stress that comes from that is huge. That's right. Exactly. Okay. All right. Let's talk about breaks. And why breaks are so important. Are they important? Why are they important? What's a break? What's not a break? Breaks us are, yeah, breaks are extremely important. So, you know, we have a part of the brain that's called the executive function. And when we're trying to stay focused and keep away distractions, that executive function in our mind, you can think of it as the CEO of the mind, right? It's, it's just working overtime to keep us on task. And it gets fatigued. And when we get fatigued, we become even more susceptible to distractions, right? Because our executive function just can't do its job yeah. to filter out distractions. So, um, you know, we, we get ourselves into this vicious cycle. We get tired, and then we become more susceptible to distractions. And then we we respond to distractions, get even more tired. So breaks are so valuable to help break that cycle. Now, uh, we, you know, a break is not just a break to check email, 
a break is really to pull away, to, to psychologically detach from your work, to help replenish these scarce mental resources that we have. The best break of all is to go outside and take a walk. And we know from research that a 20-minute walk in nature can significantly de-stress people. I've done research with colleagues that show that a 20-minute walk in nature can lead people to have significantly better divergent thinking. Divergent thinking is what we do when we brainstorm, thinking of more ideas, different ideas, higher quality ideas. So now a 20 minute walk, because it takes 20 minutes, is it 20 minutes is the maximum is the ideal number? Can 10 minutes do it? Or is it just the idea that we're outside in nature? Uh, So the research has shown 20 minutes. That's what's been tested. I can't speak if if 10 minutes would have as good of an effect, but I can tell you it's not going to be bad. It's not going to hurt you. Now, I realize sometimes circumstances don't allow that we go outside in nature for 20 minutes. So moving around, you know, getting up, moving around is is really good for us as well. I would also say if you can't do that, you know, just having quiet time where you can sit and contemplate uh, is also very valuable. And I would also say, and we found this in our research, that even doing what we call rote attention, attentional tasks. So these are simple tasks that don't require mental effort, but they keep us engaged. They make us happy. They calm us. We find that people are actually happiest when they do very simple kinds of road activities. People have different kinds of road activities. Um, One person I spoke to says he has a ball in his office and he likes to just throw that ball and it relaxes him and calms him. Some people knit, uh, some people might garden. Uh, even playing a simple, mindless game on your phone can serve to calm you and relax you. But you have to be strategic because if you're someone who can get caught in a rabbit hole, you don't yeah. want to be doing that or you want to create a hook for yourself. So you're doing it before an appointment or before you know you have to leave, and that's the hook. That pulls you out. So you have to be very strategic and careful if you're doing doing something like that. That's where setting an external timer that says, I'm going to play this game, but I'm going to give myself 10 minutes to play the game. And that's it. The timer goes off. And then I have to have the discipline to stop. Or those things that, I don't know, in the days when you have filing to do. For me, it's all electronic filing. But just clearing the clutter of that is a bit of a road attentional task. And you feel like you've accomplished so much at the end of it. So all of those kind of rotational. So you said a walk in nature that's going to increase significantly measurable, increased divergent thinking. So creativity. You also said moving around. You said quiet time for contemplating. I'm assuming that also means meditation or a mindfulness practice would help at that moment and Mm -hmm. rote attentional tasks. All right. How much of a break do I need? Is this a five minute break, a 30 minute break? What kind of a break is good? So, um, The amount of time for a break really depends on how exhausted a person is. And it's really important to be proactive with breaks. So I I use the idea of designing your day. Instead of just creating a 
schedule where we list one task with a time slot after another. It's so important to think about your own personal rhythm, your level of attention, your level of attentional resources, the amount of fatigue you're experiencing, cognitive fatigue, and to plan breaks around those. If you feel that you've got cognitive fatigue, you need a much more substantial break, right? I would say a 20-minute break in nature would be really good for that. If you just need, you know, you're not feeling very fatigued, but you need to just clear your head, then, you know, a short five or 10-minute break would also suffice. So it's important to become aware of your level of mental energy and to gear breaks around that and to intentionally design breaks into your day. Because we have a tendency, like myself, if I don't intentionally design breaks in, I'll work straight through to exhaustion. And that's not good for us. It's not good for us. This is reminding me about all the stuff that we've talked on this podcast before about Olympic class athletes getting the right kind of rhythm, what gives them renewal is all highly personalized. Yes. So uniquely tailored to the individual, what they find is renewal, how much time they need, where their physical present body systems, all of that recovery is at that moment in time. And I think that's what you're saying here is that we all have our peaks and draws and attention. We all have our cumulative cognitive exhaustion. We all have the mental, emotional taxing stuff that has gone on. And we have to tailor the breaks and the length of the breaks and the kind of the breaks to our individual needs. If I got that straight. That's right. That's right. People, we are individual creatures. We have individual differences. We have unique chronotypes. Some people are early types. Some people are late types. Uh, We have different capacities for processing information. And so it's so important to gear breaks around your individual capacity to be able to perform. All right, Gloria, fascinating conversation. Here's, you got 30 seconds to answer this one. What takes you out of your comfort zone? What takes me out of my conference? uh, It's to do something that's high risk where I can potentially fail. Um, because if I do something safe, I'm not going to learn anything. I'm not going to make any discovery. And so doing something, you know, a a new research study, writing some crazy paper, coming up with some, you know, uh, out out of the box idea brings me out of my comfort zone, knowing I could fail. Because if I fail, I haven't lost anything. I've learned something. And that's really important. Fantastic. Fantastic. Gloria, wonderful conversation. My guest today, Gloria Mark, the book that we're talking about that I really recommend is called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. I think if we take away one thing out of this entire piece, all of us have to get better at our stress. That has implications for people who are following you if you don't get on top of your stress. One place that we are not paying attention is how we use our cognitive resources. And a part of how we use our cognitive resources is how we direct our attention and the cost of redirecting, switching our attention. I think it's an untapped area that we all need to pay attention to. Gloria, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. 
thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.